Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. The passage may be found in your pew Bible on page 878. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Wes Holland will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. He entered into Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacharias, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be with a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. Thank you, Fred. I also want to thank... Dale Lewis for including the Psalms. The Psalms were intended uh, originally uh, intended to be sung, and so and I love singing the Psalms. Um, I do want to make uh, one announcement. Uh, my mother-in-law's dog was attacked this morning and uh, almost killed. So I know a, a lot of you love my mother-in-law, Elaine. Uh, a couple of dogs came into our neighborhood while Joey was walking Chrissy, and she's a 13-year-old Shih Tzu, and a German Shepherd and a Labrador, and attacked and, and from nowhere and took uh, little Chrissy off the leash and, and outside the neighborhood. So she's in bad shape. They are at the vet couple of men from our neighborhood are with my wife and Elaine. So just remember Elaine and Joey and, and little Chrissy um, as uh, all that unfolded this morning, uh, a little bit before Sunday school was supposed to start. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. We thank you for your word, uh, which... Um, reveals yourself in the glories of your great grace. Lord, we do pray that you would be with Elaine and with Joe, um, with my wife and, and with Chrissy. We thank you that Chrissy survived the attack um, and is receiving care. I don't know um, exactly uh, what her condition is at the moment, but Lord, you know, and so we commit her a little body into your hands, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Luke chapter 19, going 
passage by passage in uh, the Gospel of Luke. You know, I may have to ask you to send me back to Uganda. I need a fresh supply of sermon illustrations. I think I'm just about out. I've taught, I've shared all of them with you over the ages uh, or over the, the years. Um, however, I think I do have one more story that I don't think I've ever told. And this is, I've been to Uganda three times. And this is from my first trip to Uganda way back in 1990, 31 years ago. And it's a remarkable parallel to our sermon text this morning. So I've told you in the past how all the, the real pastors, I was just, I just graduated from, from college, um, had preached twice uh, in my entire life. And, uh, but all the, the pastors that were there on the trip got malaria and they all were down. And so Dr. Krabendam said, next man up. And so uh, he sent me to uh, the town of Mbali to, um, to uh, preach for three hours a day for a solid week. Well, then the next week, I was sent to an Anglican church conference to preach to about 300, three or 400 people. It was uh, my knees were shaking. And as I said, I'd only preached a couple of times before uh, this in my life. And so I cobbled together a sermon based on Matthew seven twenty one through 23. And it was, it was based loosely on a sermon that I had heard John MacArthur preach as he had preached through the whole Sermon on, of the Mount on one, in one sermon. But uh, the the subject of the sermon was the dangers of being a Christian in name only because there was a lot of nominal Christianity in, in Uganda. If you weren't Muslim and about, one, uh, about a million people were Muslim, the other 17 million people called themselves Christians. But there was a lot of people who were Christians in name only. So I preached this sermon, and to my surprise, uh, the Anglican bishop, uh, big man in the Church of Uganda, came forward and he said, I think we need to have an altar call. And I'm thinking, oh, what do I do now? Uh, what's, what's happening here? So the, about 15, 20 people came forward. And so I said, oh, I need to talk to these people. I need to, to talk to them about what they are, are really doing. I need to talk to them about counting the cost. So I said, I want to talk to them privately. So the bishop um, uh, arranged for me to sit down with these people in a room uh, privately. And the first couple that I met with told me that they had planned to sneak off together away from their family and live together. But during the sermon, they were convinced that they were liars because they were planning on telling lies to her parents and his parents uh, in order to do this. And the issue was the, parent, the, the groom uh, could not pay the bride's price. He couldn't afford the cow or the sheep or whatever it was. And so uh, her parents would not allow them to be married because he couldn't pay the bride price. What do you do with that? You know, I'm an American. I'm 
22, 23 years old, uh, haven't been to seminary, just graduated from college, and so I turned them over to the bishop and explained the situation. Then the second person uh, was a lady in her early 20s, and she made a living by making homemade beer. Uh, And she was convicted during the sermon that she was enabling people to get drunk and dishonor God. And so she wanted me to tell her whether she should stop making beer. I'm thinking, Lord, what have you gotten me into? So I opened my Bible to Matthew chapter 6, and I read to her, Uh, where Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, how they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet I tell you, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And then I skip down to the end of that passage. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And a great big smile spread across her face as she was trusting in Jesus Christ to take care of her no matter what. Then the third person, and this is the parallel for our text, the third person was a town mayor, and he had been taking bribes from the people. And everybody took bribes in Uganda. I could not get out of the Entebbe airport without giving bribes to the, uh, to the officials to get me through customs. It was just that's the way the country worked. It was two and a half years after the Civil War had ended. Nobody had money. There was no social order or very little. And so you got things done by greasing the skids, so to speak. And this mayor was overcome with grief, and he said that he needed to repay his bribes. And he was scared that Jesus would not accept him because of all the bribes he had taken. And so I took him to Luke 19, to our text this morning, to the story of Zacchaeus, and told him how Jesus had received Zacchaeus, a dishonest businessman, and uh, how Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. And it brought great joy to that town mayor. So as we begin to look at the text, I want to make two applications that are um, very important. I think you will see right on the surface of the text uh, how how, uh, these applications um, are drawn directly from Scripture. And first of all, no one, First application, no one is beyond the salvation that, that Jesus Christ offers to us. In fact, look at verse 10. Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he's saying this in response to Zacchaeus. If there ever was a man who was unworthy of God's salvation, if there ever was a man who was... Um, who uh, was lost, it was Zacchaeus. You get the phone calls on your cell phone or your landline, and it's someone from Microsoft telling you somebody has broken into your, your, past your password. You need to give them all your information so they can secure it. 
And what they are trying to do is rip you off. It is disgusting. It It is hateful that people would call, and especially the people that they are going to manipulate are the elderly or the poor and uneducated, and they are just going to clean their bank accounts out. Uh, Lee Baird's here. I'll, I'll, uh, he told me about this. Uh, he said that he started witnessing to one of those people, saying, well, you know you have to face God's judgment. And the person called him back the next day, repenting. I've done that before, and the people start yelling at me and hang up. Uh, Lee is more winsome, I suppose. But that's essentially who we meet in Zacchaeus. And Jesus is saying, his salvation is for sinners. It is for swindlers and cheats like that town mayor in Uganda, and even for Zacchaeus, who was a cheat. He was a tax collector. The Bible says he was very rich because he was charging these exorbitant, unconscionable taxes uh, on the people. Phil Riken comments, it turns out that Zacchaeus was exactly the kind of low-life sinner that Jesus was looking for. If the Savior had come to say if the Savior had come to save sinners, then who better to save than a man like Zacchaeus who was as lost as he could be? No one is beyond the salvation that Jesus promises to us. The second application is similar to the first. In Luke 18, Jesus said, you will remember this, the, the, uh, the young rich ruler He went away sad because he was very wealthy, and Jesus said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus might have been a wee little man. A wee little man was he, but he was way too big to fit through the eye of a needle. Yet God was about to thread him like a piece of string right through that eye of the needle. God's salvation is so powerful that he can save anybody, no matter how unlikely. And the people living in Jericho then, they hated uh, Zacchaeus, and they would have thought he would be the most unlikely person to, to, to gain the attention, much less the salvation that Jesus Christ had to give. And I want to remind you, we must never, ever prejudge who God will save. We must boldly invite even the most unlikely sinners to Jesus Christ. Jim Eggert, at the beginning of the service, said, invite your neighbors. Don't just invite the ones that you think might say yes. Because Jesus is so powerful in his salvation He can save even the most unlikely. So I wanted to make those two uh, points right off the bat. Uh, We're about halfway through the sermon. Um, And I want to 
I assume that you all know the story of Zacchaeus. Children seem especially drawn to Zacchaeus. I think it's partly the song. But I think it also could be that children are too short and uh, have a hard time seeing over the adults to know what's going on. And so I think they, they generally can sympathize with Zacchaeus. Now, in my mind's eye, when I picture Zacchaeus, and I tend to think visually, I picture a fellow that looks like Danny DeVito, right? Uh, short, shifty eyes, uh, confident swagger. But verse 2 says that he was the chief or a chief tax collector, and he was notably rich. What's happening here? Jericho is on the border of Judah and or Judea, and it's right beside what river? The Jordan River. And it was on a it was a major trade thoroughfare. So people coming from different nations would come through Jericho with all their wares to be able to bring them into Jerusalem, which was about 20 miles to the southwest. And there was Zacchaeus with his small army of tax collectors, and they would charge for every item that was brought. And they would figure up the price for what was owed, and then they would add to it. And they would charge these unconscionable taxes, and they would pocket the excess money. I, I, I heard a, a, a saying, it's not in my notes, so I may blow it. Um, figures don't lie, but liars figure, I think is how it goes. And uh, Zacchaeus was a liar who was figuring. He was hated by the townspeople in Jericho. And Jesus is coming to town. Everybody gathered to see Jesus, but poor Zacchaeus, he was just too short to see. Why did he want to see Jesus? Maybe it was exciting reports going around about Jesus. He teaches with authority, not like anybody else. He performs these miracles. There was this blind guy, remember from last week, who knew that he was the Messiah. Son of David, have mercy upon me. Maybe Zacchaeus thought that Jesus might be the Messiah. It may be that he heard that Jesus was willing to get together with tax collectors and sinners. We don't know Zacchaeus' motive, but we see his eagerness. He humbled himself. He was, it was very undignified for a man of respected position to run in public. But we read here in the text, he's running in public. And then, to add to his humiliation, he finds a sycamore with low-lying branches, and he climbs up in the sycamore tree so that he can see Jesus. Totally humiliating. Again, um, I'll read verse 3. And he was seeking to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And then notice what happens next. Jesus 
called him by name. It's as if Jesus knew his name all Zacchaeus' life. And of course, our Lord Jesus did know his name, not only all of Zacchaeus' life, from, but from eternity past. Ephesians 1, 4, um, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons in accordance with his pleasure and his will. The Lord Jesus Christ knew Zacchaeus from eternity. Zacchaeus, who was hated and shunned by the townspeople, was known and addressed personally by the Lord Jesus. I made this point last week, but I want to make it again. Jesus is not simply a theological proposition that we assent to in our mind. He is a living Savior. He is a personal Savior. He knows you by name. The book of Revelation says that he uh, writes your name on a stone that only he and you know. And that's just a, a powerful figure of speech to talk about how personal your relationship is with your living personal Savior. And so entrusting yourself to him means entering into a deeply personal relationship with him. And then notice uh, what Jesus says to him after he uh, calls him by name. He says, I must stay at your house today. He didn't say, I would like to stay at your house. He did not ask permission to stay at Zacchaeus' house. Rather, he said, I must stay at your house today. There's a divine uh, appointment. There is a divine must here. God has ordained that the Lord Jesus come and stay at his house. You know, this is the way that Jesus saves sinners. I hear some people say, well, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman that he won't come into your life until you invite him. Uh, Jesus walks right into our lives, even uninvited. When I went off to college, I had no plans of becoming a Christian, much less becoming a pastor. During my freshman year in college, the Lord Jesus walked into my life and grabbed me for his own. Changed the whole direction of my life, the whole direction of my eternity. Matthew Henry commented on this passage saying that Jesus brings his own welcome. He opens the heart and inclines it to receive him. Praise the Lord. Because if he did not walk into our lives, we would never have walked into his. Suddenly, rich Zacchaeus no longer loved his wealth. Instead, He loved Jesus, and he loved holiness. He was deeply convicted and ashamed of the way that he had taken advantage of the people when he was the tax collector. Instead of being a greedy man, he instantly became a generous man. 
complete transformation in his life. Like I've asked you before, when is a thief no longer a thief? You can throw him in jail. You can nail down anything that he possibly could steal. A thief is still a thief in his heart until he becomes a generous person. Until he is regenerated and and been born anew. And that's what happened to Zacchaeus. Complete change, not only in his attitude, or his attitude because he was a completely changed man. In Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so he says in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anything, anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If you were caught and convicted of stealing something in Jewish culture, you were to pay back the full price plus a fifth, or 20%. And this is straight from the law of Moses. You can check it out. Uh, it's found in Leviticus chapter 6, and I can't remember where in, in uh, Numbers, but it's, it's there. This is straight from the law of Moses. But instead of going by the law of Moses, Zacchaeus far exceeded the law of Moses. First, he determined that he was going to take half his wealth and give it away to the poor. And then those people that he had defrauded, that he could find, he was going to give back all that he had defrauded them, plus 20% more. I imagine that Zacchaeus knew that it would be impossible for him to find and pay back everyone that he had cheated. And I think that's why he decided right off the top, I'm going to give half of it away to the poor, since I can't find everyone Uh, And then he says, but for those I can find, I am going to pay them back fourfold. I think that Zacchaeus knew that money would be a particular temptation for him. You know, if if once you are wealthy, it's hard not to trust in it. I think it's harder to have wealth and and then not have wealth than to be poor all your life. And I think what Zacchaeus is doing is he is hitting temptation head on. I I got another Uganda story. I'm not sure if you've heard this one or not. A woman in the room next to me when I was staying in the town of Soroti, she died. She was a Ugandan, and she died during the night. I've told you about the women coming and crying outside her window. Well, her story is... She was the town prostitute, and um, she had a Western hairstyle back in 1991 or 1990. Um, having a Western hairstyle was very unusual. Again, the, 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 the country was, was in such disorder after all the, the 20, 25 years of Civil War. I was there for a month and never had a bath or a shower. I mean, this is, uh, and I won't get into the other details about all that, but it, it was disorder. And so she became a Christian. 
And she died of AIDS. She had contracted AIDS along the way back in 1990. You know, this AIDS started in East Africa. And um, anyway, the first thing she did after she became a Christian is she went and shaved her head bald. She, she called her hair her glory. And so she shaved her head because she was so ashamed of her pride and the way that she lured men into ungodly relations with her and how she used her Western hairstyle in that pursuit. And I think there's a, a parallel here with, with Zacchaeus. The, the particular uh, temptation that he's going to suffer is money, and he addresses it head on. Here's the point. When Jesus brings you into a relationship with himself, you love him and you trust him. And that love motivates you to hate your sin because it cost him so much suffering on the cross. And you also hate your sin because you know that your sin is displeasing to him. He who loves you so much and you high-handedly raise your hand against him and say, God, I choose my sin more than you. God, I love my sin more than you. And it just tears at your heart. True faith in Christ is a repenting faith and an obedient faith. The repentance we see in Zacchaeus is nothing extraordinary. It is simply a true expression of faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. You've said no to temptation that you might have thought before you became a Christian was too powerful for you to withstand. But you love Jesus and you know he loves you. And it's that love it causes you to say no to temptation. It causes you to go down on your knees in tears, in repentance. That causes you to be obedient when the obedience is hard and costly. When you come to Jesus Christ, his love that sent him to the cross to suffer the wrath of God in your place, even though he never sinned, his his triumph over death, his commitment to you from eternity past, when you know these things, you'll crawl over broken glass to, to follow him because he is that precious to you. And I'm concluding here, but I, there's this idea that I want to address, that as long as you believe in the existence of Jesus, believe the right facts about Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead, then you've punched your ticket to get into heaven. But the question is, is that true faith? And if it is the the extent of your faith, plus an hour on Sunday morning for good measure, If that is the extent of your faith, then I'd warn you, as I warned those Ugandans 31 years ago, of being a Christian in name only. 
True faith in Jesus Christ is always accompanied by repentance. True faith in Jesus Christ is a repenting faith. We see it here in the life, in the response of Zacchaeus to Jesus, saying to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I must come into your house today. The Bible uses repentance as a synonym for faith. Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, our Lord Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Acts 3.19, the disciples preached, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is a synonym for belief because true belief is a repenting Faith and true and true faith is a repenting faith. Uh, you know what I'm saying. Two sides of the same coin. Where is your faith? What is the quality of your faith? There's a lot of faith that never gets around to repenting. It's not a true faith. Lord Jesus, when we come to him, he begins setting our lives right side up. It feels like he's turning it upside down because our lives were initially so far upside down to begin with. And he begins transforming us into a people that love him, that practice righteousness like him. And that process can be a painful process because he's transforming us. From the inside out, when you see your sin as offensive to God and you learn that Jesus came to pay for your sins, when you see how, unde- how deserving you are of God's judgment and you learn how Jesus endured your judgment um, in your stead, when you see how holy God is, and you learn how unholy you are. When you see how much Jesus loves you, and you learn how to, he came to seek and to save the lost like you, repentance becomes a joy and a privilege because you love him so much. Do you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your Savior? If not, why not? What would hold you back from following him? He's such a good Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he loved us before we loved him, that he gave his life as the Lamb of God, the substitute for sinners like us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us all to grow more aware of your love for us, that you would encourage us all to have a repenting and believing faith that is centered and rooted in Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.